Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a classic science fiction novel written by the French author Jules Verne. It was first published in 1870 and is one of Verne's most famous works. The novel is known for its imaginative portrayal of underwater exploration and adventure. The story is narrated by Professor Pierre Aronnax, a French marine biologist who, along with his faithful servant Consile and a Canadian harpooner named Ned Land, embarks on a journey to investigate mysterious sea creatures that have been causing havoc in the world's oceans. They soon discover that these creatures are actually part of a technologically advanced submarine, the Nautilus, commanded by the enigmatic Captain Nemo. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is considered a pioneering work of science fiction and is known for its accurate and detailed descriptions of underwater life and technology. It has been adapted into numerous films, television series, and other media and continues to be a beloved classic of literature. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by Gaia Symphony on Apple Music. Chapter 19 Taurus Straits During the night of the 27th or 28th of December, the Nautilus left the shores of Vanikoro with great speed. Her course was southwesterly, and in three days she had gone over the 750 leagues that separated it from La Parousse's group and the southeast point of Papua. Early on the 1st of January, 1863, Consile joined me on the platform. Master, will you permit me to wish you a happy new year? What? Consile exactly as if I was at Paris in my study at the Jardin de Plants. Well, I accept your good wishes and thank you for them. Only, I will ask you what you mean by a happy new year under our circumstances? Do you mean the year that will bring us to the end of our imprisonment or the year that sees us continue this strange voyage? Really? I do not know how to answer, Master. We are sure to see curious things, and for the last two months we have not had time for dullness. The last marvel is always the most astonishing, and if we continue this progression, I do not know how it will end. It is my opinion that we shall never again see the like. I think then, with no offense to Master, that a happy year would be one in which we could see everything. On January 2nd, we had made 11,340 miles, 
or 5,250 French leagues since our starting point in the Japan seas. Before the ship's head stretched the dangerous shores of the Coral Sea on the northeast coast of Australia, our boat lay along some miles from the redoubtable bank on which Cook's vessel was lost, June 10, 1770. The boat in which Cook was struck on a rock and, if it did not sink, it was owing to a piece of coral that was broken by the shock and fixed itself in the broken keel. I had wished to visit the reef, 360 leagues long, against which the sea, always rough, broke with great violence, with a noise like thunder. But just then the inclined planes drew the Nautilus down to a great depth, and I could see nothing of the high coral walls. I had to content myself with the different specimens of fish brought up by the nets. I remarked, among others, some germans, a species of mackerel as large as a tunny with bluish sides and striped with transverse bands that disappear with the animal's life. These fish followed us in shoals and furnished us with very delicate food. We took also a large number of gilt heads about one and a half inches long, tasting like dories and flying pirapeds like submarine swallows, which, in dark nights, light alternately the air and water with their phosphorescent light. Among the mollusks and zoophytes, I found in the meshes of the net several species of Alcyonarians, Achini, Hammers, Spurs, Dials, Cerites, and Hyalii. The flora was represented by beautiful floating seaweeds, Laminarii, and Macrocysts, impregnated with the mucilage that transits through their pores and among which I gathered an admirable Nemestoma gelinearoes that was classed among the natural curiosities of the museum. Two days after crossing the Coral Sea, January 4th, we sighted the Papuan coasts. On this occasion, Captain Nemo informed me that his intention was to get into the Indian Ocean by the Strait of Torres. His communication ended there. The Torres Straits are nearly 34 leagues wide, but they are obstructed by an innumerable quantity of islands, islets, breakers, and rocks that make its navigation almost impracticable so that Captain Nemo took all needful precautions to cross them. The Nautilus, floating betwixt wind and water, went at a moderate pace. Her screw like a cetacean's tail, beat the waves slowly. Profiting by this, I and my two companions went up onto the deserted platform. Before us was the steersman's cage, and I expected that Captain Nemo was there directing the course of the Nautilus. I had before me the excellent charts of the Straits of Torres, and I consulted them attentively. Round the Nautilus, the sea dashed furiously. The course of the waves that went from southeast to northwest at the rate of two and a half miles broke on the coral that showed itself here and there. This is a bad sea, remarked Ned Land. Detestable indeed, and one that does not suit a boat like the Nautilus. The captain must be very sure of his route 
for I see their pieces of coral that would do for its keel if it only touched them slightly. Indeed the situation was dangerous, but the Nautilus seemed to slide like magic off these rocks. It did not follow the roots of the astrolabe and the zealie exactly, for they proved fatal to Dumont d'Urville. It bore more northwards, coasted the islands of Murray, and came back to the southwest towards Cumberland Passage. I thought it was going to pass it by when, going back to northwest, it went through a large quantity of islands and islets little known towards the island sound and canal movise. I wondered if Captain Nemo, foolishly imprudent, would steer his vessel into that pass where Dumont d'Urville's two corvettes touched when, swerving again, and cutting straight through to the west, he steered for the island of Gilboa. It was then three in the afternoon. The tide began to recede, being quite full. The Nautilus approached the island that I still saw with its remarkable border of screw pines. He stood off it at about two miles distant. Suddenly a shock overthrew me. The Nautilus just touched a rock and stayed immovable, laying lightly to port side. When I rose, I perceived Captain Nemo and his lieutenant on the platform. They were examining the situation of the vessel and exchanging words in their incomprehensible dialect. She was situated thus, two miles, on the starboard side, appeared Gilboa, stretching from north to west like an immense arm. Towards the south and east some coral showed itself, left by the ebb. We had run aground, and in one of those seas where the tides are middling a sorry matter for the floating of the Nautilus. However, the vessel had not suffered, for her keel was solidly joined. But, if she could neither glide off nor move, she ran the risk of being forever fastened to these rocks, and then Captain Nemo's submarine vessel would be done for. I was reflecting thus, when the captain, cool and calm, always master of himself, approached me. An accident? I asked. No, an incident. But an incident that will oblige you perhaps to become an inhabitant of this land from which you flee? Captain Nemo looked at me curiously and made a negative gesture as much as to say that nothing would force him to set foot on terra firma again. Then he said, Besides, M. Aronnax, the Nautilus is not lost. It will carry you yet into the midst of the marvels of the ocean. Our voyage is only begun, and I do not wish to be deprived so soon of the honor of your company. However, Captain Nemo, I replied, without noticing the ironical turn of his phrase, the Nautilus ran aground in open sea. Now the tides are not strong in the Pacific, and if you cannot lighten the Nautilus, I do not see how it will be reinflated. The tides are not strong in the Pacific, you are right there, Professor, but in Torres Straits one finds still a difference of a yard and a half between the level of high and low seas. Today is January 4th, 
and in five days the moon will be full. Now, I shall be very much astonished if that satellite does not raise these masses of water sufficiently and render me a service that I should be indebted to her for. Having said this, Captain Nemo, followed by his lieutenant, redescend to the interior of the Nautilus. As to the vessel, it moved not and was immovable as if the coral and polypi had already walled it up with their indestructible cement. Well, sir, said Ned Land, who came up to me after the departure of the captain. Well, friend Ned, we will wait patiently for the tide on the ninth instant, for it appears that the moon will have the goodness to put it off again. Really? Really? And this captain is not going to cast anchor at all since the tide will suffice, said Consile, simply. The Canadian looked at Consile, then shrugged his shoulders. Sir, you may believe me when I tell you that this piece of iron will navigate neither on nor under the sea again. It is only fit to be sold for its weight. I think, therefore, that the time has come to part company with Captain Nemo. Friend Ned, I do not despair of this stout Nautilus as you do, and in four days we shall know what to hold to on the Pacific tides. Besides, flight might be possible if we were in sight of the English or Provencal coast, but on the Papuan shores, it is another thing and it will be time enough to come to that extremity if the Nautilus does not recover itself again, which I look upon as a grave event. But do they know, at least, how to act circumspectly? There is an island, on that island there are trees, under those trees, terrestrial animals, bearers of cutlets and roast beef, to which I would willingly give a trial. In this, friend Ned is right said Consile, and I agree with him. Could not Master obtain permission from his friend Captain Nemo to put us on land, if only so as not to lose the habit of treading on the solid parts of our planet? I can ask him, but he will refuse. Will Master risk it? asked Consile, and we shall know how to rely upon the Captain's amiability. To my great surprise, Captain Nemo gave me the permission I asked for, and he gave it very agreeably, without even exacting from me a promise to return to the vessel, but flight across New Guinea might be very perilous, and I should not have counseled Ned Land to attempt it. Better to be a prisoner on board the Nautilus than to fall into the hands of the natives. At eight o'clock, armed with guns and hatchets, we got off the Nautilus. The sea was pretty calm, a slight breeze blew on land. Consile and I rowing, we sped along quickly, and Ned steered in the straight passage that the breakers left between them. The boat was well handled and moved rapidly. Ned Land could not restrain his joy. He was like a prisoner that had escaped from prison and knew not that it was necessary to re-enter it. Meat. We are going to eat some meat, and what meat? He replied. Real game. No, bread, 
Indeed. I do not say that fish is not good, we must not abuse it, but a piece of fresh venison, grilled on live coals, will agreeably vary our ordinary course. Glutton, said Consile, he makes my mouth water. It remains to be seen, I said, if these forests are full of game, and if the game is not such as will hunt the hunter himself. Well said, M. Aronnax, replied the Canadian, whose teeth seemed sharpened like the edge of a hatchet, but I will eat tiger line of tiger if there is no other quadruped on this island. Friend Ned is uneasy about it, said Consile. Whatever it may be, continued Ned Land, every animal with four paws without feathers, or with two paws without feathers, will be saluted by my first shot. Very well. Master Land's imprudences are beginning. Never fear, M. Aronnax, replied the Canadian, I do not want 25 minutes to offer you a dish of my sort. At half past eight, the Nautilus boat ran softly aground on a heavy sand after having happily passed the coral reef that surrounds the island of Gilboa. Chapter 20 A Few Days on Land I was much impressed on touching land. Ned Land tried the soil with his feet as if to take possession of it. However, it was only two months before that we had become, according to Captain Nemo, passengers on board the Nautilus, but, in reality, prisoners of its commander. In a few minutes, we were within musket shot of the coast. The whole horizon was hidden behind a beautiful curtain of forests enormous trees, the trunks of which attained a height of 200 feet, were tied to each other by garlands of bindweed, real natural hammocks, which a light breeze rocked. They were mimosas, figs, hibiscae, and palm trees mingled together in profusion, and under the shelter of their verdant vault grew orchids, leguminous plants, and ferns. But, without noticing all these beautiful specimens of Papuan flora, the Canadian abandoned the agreeable for the useful. He discovered a cocoa tree, beat down some of the fruit, broke them, and we drunk the milk and ate the nut with a satisfaction that protested against the ordinary food on the Nautilus. Excellent, said Ned Land. Exquisite, replied Consile. And I do not think, said the Canadian, that he would object to our introducing a cargo of coconuts on board. I do not think he would, but he would not taste them. So much the worse for him, said Consile. And so much the better for us, replied Ned Land. There will be more for us. One word only, Master Land, I said to the harpooner, who was beginning to ravage another coconut tree. Coconuts are good things, but before filling the canoe with them, it would be wise to reconnoiter and see if the island does not produce some substance not less useful. Fresh vegetables would be welcome on board the Nautilus. Master is right, replied Consile, and I propose to reserve three places in our vessel, one for fruits, the other for vegetables, 
and the third for the venison, of which I have not yet seen the smallest specimen. Concile, we must not despair, said the Canadian. Let us continue, I returned, and lie in wait. Although the island seems uninhabited, it might still contain some individuals that would be less hard than we on the nature of game. Ho! Ho, said Ned Land, moving his jaws significantly. Well, Ned, said Concile. My word, returned the Canadian, I begin to understand the charms of anthropophagy. Ned! Ned! What are you saying? You, a man-eater? I should not feel safe with you, especially as I share your cabin. I might perhaps wake one day to find myself half-devoured. Friend Concile, I like you much, but not enough to eat you unnecessarily. I would not trust you, replied Concile. But enough. We must absolutely bring down some game to satisfy this cannibal, or else one of these fine mornings, Master will find only pieces of his servant to serve him. While we were talking thus, we were penetrating the somber arches of the forest, and for two hours we surveyed it in all directions. Chance rewarded our search for eatable vegetables, and one of the most useful products of the tropical zones furnished us with precious food that we missed on board. I would speak of the breadfruit tree, very abundant in the island of Gilboa, and I remarked chiefly the variety destitute of seeds, which bears in Malaya the name of Rima. Ned Land knew these fruits well. He had already eaten many during his numerous voyages, and he knew how to prepare the eatable substance. Moreover, the sight of them excited him, and he could contain himself no longer. Master, he said, I shall die if I do not taste a little of this breadfruit pie. Taste it, friend Ned, taste it as you want. We are here to make experiments, make them. It won't take long, said the Canadian. And, provided with a lentil, he lighted a fire of dead wood that crackled joyously. During this time, Concile and I chose the best fruits of the breadfruit. Some had not then attained a sufficient degree of maturity, and their thick skin covered a white but rather fibrous pulp. Others, the greater number yellow and gelatinous, waited only to be picked. These fruits enclosed no kernel. Concile brought a dozen to Ned Land, who placed them on a coal fire after having cut them in thick slices, and while doing this repeating, You will see, master, how good this bread is. More so when one has been deprived of it so long. It is not even bread, added he, but a delicate pastry. You have eaten none, master? No, Ned. Very well, prepare yourself for a juicy thing. If you do not come for more, I am no longer the king of harpooners. 
After some minutes, the part of the fruits that was exposed to the fire was completely roasted. The interior looked like a white pasty, a sort of soft crumb, the flavor of which was like that of an artichoke. It must be confessed this bread was excellent, and I ate of it with great relish. What time is it now? asked the Canadian. Two o'clock at least, replied Consile. How time flies on firm ground, sighed Nedland. Let us be off, replied Consile. We returned through the forest and completed our collection by a raid upon the cabbage palms that we gathered from the tops of the trees, little beans that I recognized as the brew of the Malays and yams of a superior quality. We were loaded when we reached the boat. But Ned Land did not find his provisions sufficient. Fate, however, favored us. Just as we were pushing off, he perceived several trees from 25 to 30 feet high, a species of palm tree. At last, at five o'clock in the evening, loaded with our riches, we quitted the shore and half an hour after we hailed the Nautilus. No one appeared on our arrival. The enormous iron-plated cylinder seemed deserted. The provisions embarked, I descended to my chamber and after supper slept soundly. The next day, January 6th, nothing new on board. Not a sound inside, not a sign of life. The boat rested along the edge in the same place in which we had left it. We resolved to return to the island. Ned Land hoped to be more fortunate than on the day before with regard to the hunt and wished to visit another part of the forest. At dawn we set off. The boat, carried on by the waves that flowed to shore, reached the island in a few minutes. We landed and Thinking that it was better to give in to the Canadian, we followed Nedland, whose long limbs threatened to distance us. He wound up the coast towards the west, then, fording some torrents, he gained the high plain that was bordered with admirable forests. Some kingfishers were rambling along the watercourses, but they would not let themselves be approached. Their circumspection proved to me that these birds knew what to expect from bipeds of our species and I concluded that, if the island was not inhabited, at least human beings occasionally frequented it. After crossing a rather large prairie, we arrived at the skirts of a little wood that was enlivened by the songs and flight of a large number of birds. There are only birds, said Consile. But they are eatable, replied the harpooner. I do not agree with you, friend Ned, for I see only parrots there. Friend Consile, said Ned, gravely, the parrot is like pheasant to those who have nothing else. And, I added, this bird, suitably prepared, is worth knife and fork. Indeed, under the thick foliage of this wood, A world of parrots were flying from branch to branch, only needing a careful education to speak the human language. For the moment, 
They were chattering with parrots of all colors and grieved cockatoos who seemed to meditate upon some philosophical problem, whilst brilliant red lorries passed like a piece of bunting carried away by the breeze, Papuans with the finest azure colors and in all a variety of winged things most charming to behold, but few eatable. However, a bird peculiar to these lands, and which has never passed the limits of the Arrow and Papuan Islands, was wanting in this collection. But fortune reserved it for me before long. After passing through a moderately thick copse, we found a plain obstructed with bushes. I saw then those magnificent birds, the disposition of whose long feathers obliges them to fly against the wind. Their undulating flight, graceful aerial curves, and the shading of their colors attracted and charmed one's looks. I had no trouble in recognizing them. Birds of paradise! I exclaimed. The Malays, who carry on a great trade in these birds with the Chinese, have several means that we could not employ for taking them. Sometimes they put snares on the top of high trees that the birds of paradise prefer to frequent. Sometimes they catch them with a viscous bird lime that paralyzes their movements. They even go so far as to poison the fountains that the birds generally drink from. But we were obliged to fire at them during flight, which gave us few chances to bring them down, and, indeed, we vainly exhausted one half our ammunition. About eleven o'clock in the morning, the first range of mountains that formed the center of the island was traversed, and we had killed nothing. Hunger drove us on. The hunters had relied on the products of the chase, and they were wrong. Happily Consile, to his great surprise, made a double shot and secured breakfast. He brought down a white pigeon and a wood pigeon, which, cleverly plucked and suspended from a skewer, was roasted before a red fire of dead wood. While these interesting birds were cooking, Ned prepared the fruit of the bread tree. Then the wood pigeons were devoured to the bones and declared excellent. The nutmeg, with which they are in the habit of stuffing their crops, flavors their flesh and renders it delicious eating. Now, Ned, what do you miss now? Some four-footed game and aronax. All these pigeons are only side dishes and trifles, and until I have killed an animal with cutlets I shall not be content. Nor I, Ned, if I do not catch a bird of paradise. Let us continue hunting, replied Consile. Let us go towards the sea. We have arrived at the first declivities of the mountains, and I think we had better regain the region of forests. That was sensible advice, and was followed out. After walking for one hour we had attained a forest of sago trees. Some inoffensive serpents glided away from us. The birds of paradise fled at our approach, and truly I despaired of getting near one when Consile, who was walking in front, suddenly bent down, uttered a triumphal cry, 
and came back to me bringing a magnificent specimen. Ah, bravo, Conseil. Master is very good. No, my boy, you have made an excellent stroke. Take one of these living birds and carry it in your hand. If Master will examine it, he will see that I have not deserved great merit. Why, Conseil? Because this bird is as drunk as a quail. Drunk? Yes, sir, drunk with the nutmegs that it devoured under the nutmeg tree under which I found it. See, friend Ned, see the monstrous effects of intemperance. By Jove, exclaimed the Canadian, because I have drunk gin for two months, you must needs reproach me. However, I examined the curious bird. Consile was right. The bird, drunk with the juice, was quite powerless. It could not fly, it could hardly walk. This bird belonged to the most beautiful of the eight species that are found in Papua and in the neighboring islands. It was the large emerald bird, the most rare kind. It measured three feet in length. Its head was comparatively small, its eyes placed near the opening of the beak and also small. But the shades of color were beautiful, having a yellow beak, brown feet and claws, nut colored wings with purple tips, pale yellow at the back of the neck and head, an emerald color at the throat, chestnut on the breast and belly. Two horned, downy nets rose from below the tail that prolonged the long light feathers of admirable fineness and they completed the whole of this marvelous bird that the natives have poetically named the bird of the sun. But if my wishes were satisfied by the possession of the bird of paradise, the Canadians were not yet. Happily, about two o'clock, Ned Land brought down a magnificent hog from the brood of those the natives call Bariotown. The animal came in time for us to procure real quadruped meat and he was well received. Ned Land was very proud of his shot. The hog, hit by the electric ball, fell stone dead. The Canadian skinned and cleaned it properly after having taken half a dozen cutlets destined to furnish us with a grilled repast in the evening. Then the hunt was resumed, which was still more marked by Ned and Consile's exploits. Indeed, the two friends, beating the bushes, roused a herd of kangaroos that fled and bounded along on their elastic paws. But these animals did not take to flight so rapidly but what the electric capsule could stop their course. Ah, Professor, cried Ned Land, who was carried away by the delights of the chase, what excellent game, and stewed, too. What a supply for the Nautilus! Two, three, five down. And to think that we shall eat that flesh and that the idiots on board shall not have a crumb. I think that, in the excess of his joy, the Canadian, if he had not talked so much, would have killed them all. 
but he contented himself with a single dozen of these interesting marsupians. These animals were small. They were a species of those kangaroo rabbits that live habitually in the hollows of trees and whose speed is extreme, but they are moderately fat and furnish at least estimable food. We were very satisfied with the results of the hunt. Happy Ned proposed to return to this enchanting island the next day, for he wished to depopulate it of all the eatable quadrupeds. But he had reckoned without his host. At six o'clock in the evening we had regained the shore, our boat was moored to the usual place. The Nautilus, like a long rock, emerged from the waves two miles from the beach. Ned Land, without waiting, occupied himself about the important dinner business. He understood all about cooking well. The bariotan, grilled on the coals, soon scented the air with a delicious odor. Indeed, the dinner was excellent. Two wood pigeons completed this extraordinary menu. The sago pasty, the articarpus bread, some mangoes, half a dozen pineapples, and the liquor fermented from some coconuts overjoyed us. I even think that my worthy companion's ideas had not all the plainness desirable. Suppose we do not return to the Nautilus this evening, said Conseil. Suppose we never return, added Ned Land. Just then a stone fell at our feet and cut short the harpooner's proposition.